This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And for the hour, we're going to tell a heck of a story about one of the greatest golfers of all time. We're going to celebrate and honor his death. Arnold Palmer died on this day in history in 2016. All of our This Days in Histories, by the way, are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to learn all the things that matter in life, all the things that are beautiful in life. Go to hillsdale.edu to get all of their free and terrific courses. And boy, was Arnold Palmer beautiful, and did he matter. He wasn't precious, and he wasn't privileged. One reporter called him Marlon Brando with a golf club. He created Arnie's Army, and you'll hear from every walk of life, golfers too, on who was a part of that army, and it was America. And so we're going to throw to an hour we did back around the time of his death. Let's go back to 2016. Was he the best ever? Who cares? Let others argue about that. He was a great one. Was he the most important? You're going to find out that he was. Because it ended up he democratized a sport that had been only for the elites. But he didn't just democratize it. He commercialized it. He was the first to win $1 million on the professional tour. He was the first to fly his own plane to a tournament. 68 PGA wins, seven majors, four masters. Four. That's crazy. Born in Latrobe, Pennsylvania, to a working-class family in a steel town. But let's take a listen first before we dig into this biography to some of the folks who remembered Arnold Palmer. Let's go to Latrobe, Pennsylvania first, his home, where an airport's named after him. Because, again, he flew his own plane and he loved aviation. Here's a report from the small town TV station. You can see that a growing memorial is starting to take form here outside of the Arnold Palmer Regional Airport. And even the flags are at half-staff today. People I talk to in this community tell me that this loss is truly heartbreaking. Stu Hartman stopped by the Arnold Palmer Regional Airport with flowers in hand, paying respect to an icon. He touched a lot of people in so many ways, and a true gentleman. I had the opportunity to meet him once, and he was just the most down-to-earth guy you want to meet. We're going to miss him terribly. Arnold Palmer's legacy just wasn't on the golf course, but also Latrobe and surrounding community. The airport, named in his honor, where he served on the Westmoreland County Airport Authority. Great loss all over, but especially around here, uh, he was uh, was a great guy, and he, he did a lot for... For everything, including the airport. Palmer was also the president and principal owner of the Latrobe Country Club. Just down the road in Youngstown, signs of gratitude and thanks and fly with angels, Arnie. A man whose kind hardness, spirit and generosity is just as big as his talents on the links. He sat with kings and queens and presidents and, and he was just as happy sitting with a bunch of guys from the mill or the, for the coal mines and he wasn't pretentious. He was a it was what you know, everybody calls a good egg. We were just uh, so blessed to have had him uh, amongst us, and we're going to miss him. He sat with kings, and he did. You'll learn that General and President Dwight D. Eisenhower actually showed up at his doorstep to hang with him for a weekend and play some golf. But yet he was just as comfortable with just ordinary working-class folks because he saw himself as ordinary. There's just no doubt. Part of the big three in the 1960s of golf, Gary Player, Arnold Palmer, 
and Jack Nicholas, but there was no rivalry in sports quite like Nicholas and Palmer. Let's take a listen to Jack Nicholas remembering his friend. We'd be playing together, and one of us would shoot 73, and the other one would shoot 74. We'd walk off, and he says, well, I got you today. Well, while the rest of the field just passed us. We didn't really care whether the rest of the field passed us or not. We wanted to beat each other. and uh, We've been that way all our lives, but yet then we'd finish the round. We'd shake hands and go have dinner together. Well, I think it's the legacy of the game of golf is he's the guy that popularized the game. He's the guy that moved forward. Uh, he handled, he led his life the right way. He was, uh, uh, he was, uh, he was a strickler, uh, a stickler for uh, dress codes and, and uh, you know, uh, clean faces and uh, short hair. And, you know, he was pretty much the old school. He, he loved the traditions of the game. He loved the traditions of, of how you're supposed to handle yourself and, and how you're supposed to represent uh, yourself in the game. I think the, the best memories are memories of uh, uh, the two of us and just being friends, having each other's back, doing, supporting each other in a variety of different ways. I spoke to him about two weeks ago on his birthday. I, I used to always call him on his birthday, and uh, that was September 10th, and uh, he, um, uh, he sounded great. And I said, how are you doing? He said, I'm doing good. He said, I'm coming back. He said, I'm starting to hit some golf balls again. And, uh, and I don't know whether he was or not, but that's what he said. Well, we talked a little bit. I thought he was doing great. I was really, uh, he was a lot better than he was uh, uh, at Augusta this year. At Augusta this year, he didn't look very good. And we were, were worried about him. And, uh, then, and then he, and he starts sounding better. You hate to lose a friend, and you hate to lose any kind of a good friend. And, but I, don't, I, I sort of look back and remember the good times we had. Uh, we're both getting pretty old. And uh, uh, you know, I think that we had a lot of good times, a lot of good things that we did together. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of great uh, uh, competitions and a lot of great times together with our wives. And, you know, that's, that's the things you remember. And that is the thing you remember. Here's Freddie Couples, who called into a sports station. And Freddie's a, a remarkable golf talent. And he actually gets overwhelmed by the prospect of thinking about, talking about his close friend's passing. Uh, you remember your first encounter with Arnold? Uh, yeah, and I, I just want to start by, you know, I think you guys are doing a phenomenal job. Um, <laughs> Freddie, you with us? It's a tough loss, Freddie. I can't do anything, Freddie Couple says. Very powerful. When we come back, you're going to hear from so many more people on the life of Arnold Palmer. And you can only hope when you pass that people are crying like that about you, folks. Take a listen to The Secret. You're going to hear it from Arnold Palmer, from beyond, from all of his friends. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we're continuing with our celebration of the life of Arnold Palmer and what a life it was. You just heard a grown man openly and just outwardly crying on air, could not get it together. And this is how he impacted, by the way, his peers. So here are these people he's competing with every day, day in, day out, and he forged deep relationships with the people who once they went on the course, he wanted to win. But the second he got off, he wanted to help their friend, his friends. And they were all friends, these guys, and you can hear it. Here's Lee Trevino. My goodness, we could do an hour on him. His life is so compelling. Here's Lee Trevino, what it was like playing with Arnold Palmer. Arnie couldn't move me. I was always, I love Arnold so bad. I always played bad with Arnie because I was making sure, you okay? You need a Coke? A hot dog? I want to take care of Arnie. Arnie is like a father figure to us. And and he is. And and I love this guy. And we're just wondering, you know, you okay? You okay? I, I remember playing the last competitive round that he played in Houston. I birdied one, I birdied two, we go to tee off at three, and he looked at me and he says, what the hell are you doing? And I said, what do you mean, what am I doing? He said, don't embarrass me like that. I said, oh, okay. So, now we go to the next hole, the part three, and I hit one up there about eight feet, and Arnie, Arnie hits it, you know, and Arnie's going, you know, and he's going like this, and the ball gets up on the bank and comes back in the water, and he said, how close is that? And I said, Arnie, I said, I said, Augusta Pines were playing in Houston there. And I said, Arnie, I said, the pin's over there. He said, what? I said, that's a tree you're shooting at over there. I said, I said, the pin's over there. And that's when he quit. He quit right there, right there. He said to me, he said, I'm not playing anymore. I said, what do you mean I'm playing anymore? He said, that's it, I'm not, that's my last competitive shot. And I said, well, what do you want me to do? I'm going to get a card for you. I'll have you take him back to the, to the clubhouse. Oh, no, no, no. He said, I'm not going back to the clubhouse. He said, I'm going to finish my round. He says, but I don't want to keep score. So he told the guy holding the thing up, he said, put, put five under on there and leave it. I said, no. Self-deprecating. I mean, here's the, the, the greatest, perhaps, golfer of all time, and he's just cutting it up even as he's losing his sight and his, his hand-eye and depth coordination and knowing that it's time to stop. He's still making it fun. I don't know how you do that, but, again, this is what made Arnold Palmer Arnold Palmer. Lee Trevino continues with another story. Arnie gets up there, and, and, and he's going around, and, and I've already got this figured out. I've already said, you know, this is his last round. My wheels are turning, and I said, I'm going to get his ball. I'm going to have him sign his ball, and I'm going to have his last competitive golf ball. So he's hitting so many in the lake because he's taking chances. I mean, he's just ripping everything. And he keeps losing balls, and I'm, I'm, I'm worried like hell that he's going he's to he's run out of balls. <laughs> he's going to end up signing one of mine. <laughs> Man, this is going to be awful. So he's, he keeps hitting them in the water and everything. We get on 17. Still 500. He's still 500. People are going bad. And so he, he gets on 17, and just for some reason, for some reason, this, this group's putting on the green up there, and he says, Four! He said, I always wanted to do that. 
finishes. And, and I'm just, I'm just dying. I'm hoping. I'm looking for balls in the water every time he hits one. I'm looking fishing for them. I'm saying he's got to have that ball with a little umbrella on it. You know, he had all the golf balls have that little umbrella. And sure enough, he had one. So on my hand, he got the glove. I got the ball. We didn't think about taking the shoes. You know, we didn't think about it. But he keeps all his shoes. And Trevino talked about how Palmer never threw anything away. They were doing a, a deal on him about all his stuff that he's had, all the equipment and everything. He's, yeah, he's never thrown away anything. You know, he still has all the balls he plays with. You know, Sneed kept them all, but he sold them. You know, uh, Arnie just keeps them. He's got the gloves. Every pair of shoes he ever owned, he still has. Every club. He's got a wall like that with all persimmon drivers in the wall that, he, that he'd had over all the years. But he keeps the tractors, you know, the Toro tractor and everything. Yeah, it's just a, it's, it's a beautiful, you know, they could do a program on hoarding, you know what I mean? <laughs> but this is not a mess, this is, this is really classy, yeah. And you could just tell the love and the friendship and the collegiality and the details. He knew a lot of details about this man's life and listened to the laughter in the crowd. Greg Norman, the great champion calls into a talk show and remembers his friend, Arnold Palmer. I've known him for uh, 35 years, plus years, and uh, I knew him on the golf course, I knew him off the golf course, I knew him in a locker room, uh, I knew him in such social settings and uh, where you've got to know the individual. And quite honestly, Stuart, um, there's two people that have, well, actually three, but two in the sporting world that have actually impacted my life dramatically, and that would be Muhammad Ali and Arnold Palmer. Both of them had magnetism and charisma oozing out of their skin. Um, and he was a man of the people, for the people. Wow, imagine being in that company. Two guys, one of them is Muhammad Ali, the other is Arnold Palmer. Here's Greg Norman on how Palmer brought money to the game. He brought money to the game. He, you know, every player today owes a debt of thank, uh, thank you to Arnold Palmer for what he's done. These guys, Roy McIlroy won $11.5 million yesterday. Uh, Roy McIlroy could never have won $11.5 million if it wasn't for Arnold Palmer and what he did bringing the audience uh, to the game of golf through the TV screen. And here's Norman giving advice to younger players. Every young player today should go back and watch old footage of Arnold Palmer, old footage where Arnold was walking down the fairways. There were no gallery roads back then. Uh, you actually walked down there, and people were touching you, feeling you, smelling you, talking to you, wanting to be involved with you. And Arnold embraced every single one of them. And today, you know, a lot of players are very stoic. I get it from security concerns and all that stuff. Why, you know, you have security everywhere and people roped off everywhere. I get it. But quite honestly, Arnold was the one that brought people to him. They brought people to the game of golf, and we should all, all sit back and take a week of looking all at all the old footage of Arnold Palmer and how he brought people to the game of golf. And this could apply to your business. This could apply to your church and to your family. And that's just his openness, his willingness to reveal himself to others, share with others, and just love on other people and total strangers. Here's the legendary sportscaster, Jim Nance. And my goodness, he was just tearing up the whole day. Jim was just struggling. And I've never, ever seen Jim Nance struggle. He does Super Bowls. There's nothing Jim doesn't do. And here's Jim with Gary Player. Go out and watch Arnold Palmer for a day. Walk around 18 holes. Watch how many hands he shakes. How many people he makes eye contact with. Look at the patience he had with people with autographs. I mean, people just swarming on him. I mean, he's been so wonderful for the game. 
And here's Bill Murray. And you know him as an actor, but my goodness, if Bill Murray could do or be anything, it would be a professional golfer. And if he could be one person, there's no doubt he'd want to be Arnold Palmer. Let's take a listen to Bill Murray, who is on For the Win, our friends over at USA Today. Well, I mean, I, I remember playing golf with him. He was grinding because he was getting ready for a senior uh, open. And so he was very focused on playing. And then when it was ended, it ended he signed autographs for about almost three full hours straight. Wow. I never saw anything like it. I mean, he was sitting down, and they kept giving him, uh, like, short glasses of Rolling Rock, but he signed for, like, two hours and 45 minutes straight. I never saw anything like it. It's amazing. I just want to stand there. it. You know, we'll be doing an hour on Bruce Springsteen soon. His, his memoir, Born to Run, is something almost anyone should read, even if you're not a music fan. But for anybody who ever had the opportunity to see Bruce in a concert, it was really the same thing. The first guy to go out into the audience, to throw himself into the audience, and the first guy to just say, as long as the audience is out there, I'm going to keep playing. And still to this day, in his mid-60s, playing four-hour concerts. Because his feeling is, look, folks have driven a long way to see me. This may be the only time they've ever seen me, or ever will. They've put down their hard money, hard-earned money on the line, and I'm going to give them back more than I possibly can. As John Stewart once said about him, he leaves no gas in the tank. And Arnold Palmer left no gas in the tank. When we come back, we'll hear from Dan Patrick. We'll hear Arnold Palmer talk about his father, his roots, and so much more, including how Arnold Palmer professionalized and commercialized professional sports. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, the life of Arnold Palmer celebrated for the hour. To our four-time Masters champion, Mr. Arnold Palmer. This is Our American Stories. We're celebrating the life of Arnold Palmer. That was the kickoff to the 2016 Masters. And what a better way to do it than to introduce to the public again and always the man who won four green jackets. Four. Now let's pick up with more celebrations. We just heard from Bill Murray. There was one more we wanted to play before we dig into the life of Arnold Palmer. But my goodness, what better way to recall a life than to hear the voices of so many different people from so many different walks of life. Here's the broadcaster, Dan Patrick, talking about the impact Palmer had on him. I still go back to one of my favorite stories. One of my favorite moments in doing this was at the Fred Meyer Challenge. Peter Jacobson, he hosted this in Portland. And he'd have all the golf pros there raising money for charity. And I brought the radio show up there with Rob Dibble when I was at the mothership. And we're on the 18th. And then I thought Arnold and Jack and Peter Jacobson were playing the 18th. And, and I thought I would bring a microphone out there while on the show live 
and follow them off to the side. So Peter Jacobson looks at me on the side of the fairway, and he's, he motions for me to come here, come here. And I don't even know what he's talking about. They're playing. And I, I walk out on the course, and Jake goes, isn't this great? I said, yeah, like what am I doing out here? And he said, walk in with us, walk in with us. So I'm behind Arnold Palmer, Jack Nicholas, Peter Jacobson, going into the 18th. And to walk up and hear that swell, hear that applause, they hear it all the time. But to be able to see it from their perspective, still one of the great moments I ever had. And Arnie was so generous. I remember that handshake of his. It hurt. It was a big hand. He had these big forearms. But he was, he was James Bond before James Bond. He was dashing. He made golf cool. It was just fun to be around that. He hadn't played in 43 years the last time he was on tour. PJ Tour, 43 years. And he was still one of the top earners. He had this name, this name that rose above his sport. He was had his own soft drink. I mean, he was famous in you know non-golf circles. That's when you know you've made it. But Arnold Palmer had his own plane. I mean, everything about him. You know, he wore a he wore a cardigan and looked great. There was just something about Arnold. You know, he just had a heater in his mouth and his sleeves rolled up and just ready to go. Whatever it was, we're ready to go. We're ready to go. A little bit about his life. Born in Latrobe, Pennsylvania, a working class steel mill town, the son of Doris and Milford Jerome Deacon Palmer. He learned golf from his father who had suffered from polio at a young age and was head professional and greenskeeper at Latrobe County Country Club, allowing young Arnold to accompany his father as he maintained the course. Let's hear Arnold talk about his father and how his dad was his biggest influence, describing him as, well, tough, but honest. He was a tough, hard-working golf pro. And he learned both ends of the business the hard way, by experience and by personal uh, work and 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 fun. And uh, and he was tough. He never he never let up. He stayed tough uh, all his life. And as a matter of fact, I think about it. he died a tough guy. He played 27 holes of golf the day he passed, and he was tough. He was honest, and uh, he was probably as honest uh, as I've ever seen anyone. He, he said it the way it was. He did it the way it was. Uh, he, he helped everybody he could. Uh, he contributed. Uh, probably the toughest guy that he dealt with was his son. Palmer goes on to talk about not having much money in his early life growing up and the sacrifices his dad made. In my family, my father and our, and our family uh, had no money most of our early lives. We, we would come out and hunt rabbits and pheasants and uh, and take them home and my mother would soak them in salt water overnight and and we'd eat them the next day and that was great stuff uh, but that was part of all of the education uh, 
And and my father, when he bought uh, groceries, if he didn't have enough money to pay for it, I I remember him scraping up enough money to go pay the bill, and and he did, and he he, he sacrificed the things that he liked to pay the bills for groceries that we ate. And that was his life. That was the way he lived in the early days. And, and of course, he told me how he appreciated uh, the fact that he was lucky enough to be a golf pro and to uh, be able to make a living doing what he was doing. And here's Arnold talking about his dad's first compliment. The first compliment Arnold ever gets from him, and it was after winning the National Amateur Championship. Nice corn, boy. That's all he said. But that, in a way, wasn't that the first time he complimented you? My father was very tough. He was never one for throwing out rewards or uh, congratulations. And, and when he said, nice corn, boy, I knew what it meant, and I felt it, and I was grateful. I called it the turning point, and uh, it was the turning point in the way it it gave me uh, the confidence that I needed to go ahead, turn pro, and get on the tour and play. And of course, with the contract that I had with Wilson, which goes back a few years, uh, it was pretty restricted because uh, I wasn't getting a lot of money. I was getting enough to survive. And we're going to talk about that restrictive relationship with Wilson and the nature of the business of golf and the business of sports in just a minute as we go to the last part of our celebration. But what you're about to hear about Arnold Palmer, my goodness, I had no idea myself. But that victory was the turning point in his life winning the U.S. Amateur in Detroit in 1954. After that match, Palmer stopped the job he had at the time of selling paint and then continued to play in tournaments. There, in a weight memorial tournament in Shawnee on Delaware, Pennsylvania, he met his future wife, Winnie Walzer, and they would remain married for 45 years until her death in 1999. And Arnold remarried again in 2005. And his kids were so happy, and so were friends. And one just said this in a golf magazine about Dad. I think the companionship that Dad has now found with his new wife, Kit, is just what he needed. I think he needed someone that enjoys the things he enjoys. I think that everybody embraced her in a way that I don't think, well, I don't think she ever felt there was a looming presence of my mom. But I think it's nice to see my dad finally again with someone he loves. And it took him six years to find new love. And I think, again, one woman man, simple life, simple principles. And by the way, the way he talked about his dad, it, it almost word for word sounds like Brett Favre and the way he talked about his dad. Not ebullience, not a, a kind word every minute, but when he finally did say, good job, son, or that a boy, my goodness, those words meant something. These fathers were living in examples of how to be good dads. They may not have spoken the words a lot, 
but they were there. Their presence was felt, their love felt. Arnold Palmer, his life. When we come back, the business life of Arnold Palmer. This is a heck of a story. This is Our American Stories, our final segment, an hour-long celebration of the life of Arnold Palmer. And now this is the business life, because he changed sports as we know it. For every athlete that plays today, they have Arnold Palmer to thank for the story you're about to hear. Let's get the 30,000 overview from Dominic Chu, who filed this report for CNBC. I look back on Arnold Palmer's legacy off the golf course. His business and endorsement deals have made him one of the richest sports figures in history. He's endorsed dozens of brands, everything from Cadillac to Hertz to Rolex to Pennzoil. Same Pennzoil, new package. According to Forbes, his net worth is estimated to be around $875 million, and that lands him at third among the world's highest paid athletes. Palmer's business empire has a variety of different operations, among them. A golf course design company that has had a hand in the creation of over 300 golf courses all across the world. He had an ownership interest in famed golf resort Pebble Beach. He teamed up with a lawyer named Mark McCormick, and that relationship was a cornerstone to what would eventually become sports agency giant International Management Group, or IMG. He even licensed his name to one of his favorite drinks, a mixture of lemonade and iced tea. The Arizona Beverage Company produces over 400 million cans of Arnold Palmer's each year. And it's fitting that television propelled him to stardom in his early years. For in 1995, he helped start the Golf Channel, which at the time was the first ever single sport cable network. This week, the golfing world converges on Chaska, Minnesota for the USA versus Europe Ryder Cup competition. It's held every two years. Remembering Arnold Palmer's life and contributions to the game is expected to be a part of the celebration. But off the course, Palmer will be remembered as one of the kings of sports marketing, laying the groundwork for other athletes to follow in the legacy that he worked so hard to create. For Nightly Business Report, I'm Dominic Chu at the New York Stock Exchange. And Matt Fullerman wrote a terrific piece on what Arnold Palmer meant to the modernization and commercialization of sports. And when it was time to renew his contract with Wilson, and it was at the time just almost a... a, a slave labor contract. They just barely paid anybody anything. Palmer and Wilson spent a year in negotiations, eventually drafting a long-term deal, but Palmer knew that something was missing. Palmer is a pretty conservative guy, and he wants to get the deal done. But he also wants this one other thing, which is a life insurance policy, and a life insurance policy that would you know, protect his two young daughters and his wife in case anything happened to him. He's driving around to tournaments, in you know, in, in the middle of the night, uh, flying in rickety planes all over the country, and really all eventually, and pretty soon thereafter, all over the world. You know, this is not the the, the safest thing. And you know, everybody wants a life insurance policy way to protect their families. And it would have cost Wilson eight hundred and eighty dollars a year, and they would have been taking money that would have been gone to him as income anyway, and just before it went to him as income buying a, you know, a tax-deferred life insurance policy. 
And everyone says, okay, except for James Cooney, who was the CEO of Wilson at the time. And, you know, he just did not have any respect for athletes and golfers. And there was just no way he could think of giving a life insurance policy uh, for even at the low cost of $880 a year to a golfer. And that became all Palmer's line in the sand. It was a hard line. Palmer left Wilson as soon as his contract allowed and started his own business. There were so many things that could have gone wrong. So why did Palmer take such a chance? He risked it all, and he did it because he realized that if he didn't do it, golfers and athletes were just never going to be respected. If, he, if the best golfer in the world, the most charismatic athlete on the planet at that point, arguably, wasn't going to get a fair deal, then no one was going to get a fair deal. And that's why he, that's why he said enough is enough. And it turned out all right because uh, none of those terrible things happened. Um, he launched the Arnold Palmer Golf Company. So within about three years of him turning down the deal with Wilson, he went from making roughly $10,000 a year off the sale of equipment and golf balls and things like that that had his name on it to making roughly $500,000 a year for that. And that was the launch of an empire. And by the way, for a little bit of levity, we heard about that drink. Here's Arnold Palmer telling the story of how the drink came to be named after him. Well, I will tell you, it started right here, uh, about 100 yards from where we are. I came home one day and uh, my wife made a lot of iced tea for lunch. And I said, hey, babe, I've got an idea. I said, you make the iced tea, make a big pitcher, and we'll just put a little lemonade in it and see how that works. So we, we mixed it up and I got the solution about where I wanted it. And I put the lemonade in it and I had it for lunch after working on the golf course. And I thought, boy. This is great, babe. I'm going to take it when I play golf. I'm going to take a thermos of iced tea and lemonade. I was building a golf course in uh, Palm Springs, and it was a very hot summer day. It was about 115 degrees, and we had gone in for lunch. And I uh, said to the waitress, could you do me a favor? And she said, sure, what is it? I said, I want an iced tea, but I want about a... Oh, a third or a quarter of it in lemonade. All of a sudden, the waitress went over to another table, and the lady at the table said, I want an Arnold Palmer. Well, all of us turned our head. We thought, what is she talking about? And she said, I want what he ordered. And it was, it was me, and, it, and that was the, and she called it an Arnold Palmer. Well, from that day on, it spread like wildfire. I was embarrassed to ask for an Arnold Palmer. I always say, can I have a, a, an iced tea and, and put about a third of it in lemonade? And they said, oh, you want an Arnold Palmer. <laughs> I just finally said, well, I won't fight the battle anymore. I'll just ask for an Arnold Palmer think maybe they won't know who I am. <laughs> and always self-deprecating. 
And yeah, you've heard of a lot of people this hour from Bill Murray, and you're going to hear from Jim Nance in a bit and Dan Patrick. But the best story of all was by Bob Green. And we tried to reach him, but Bob's just hard to reach. So I'm going to do a reading of his column because, well, Bob's such a good writer. And here's his story. And I think this illustrates why Palmer was so loved. Here's Arnold Palmer, who is everything, and here's a kid with a folded-up sheaf of copy paper and a ballpoint pen, who is nothing, and in a split second, Palmer has to make a decision. The decision, whichever way it goes, won't affect Palmer's life at all, but it has the potential to make the kid giddy with delight or to make him feel like an embarrassed idiot. This is the summer of 1967. Palmer has flown to central Ohio to play in a one-day pro-am. At 37 years old, he is one of the most adored and respected figures in American sports. The kid is me. I've caged a summer job helping out the lower circulation daily in a two-paper town. I'm working nights, so I don't have to be in the office until mid-afternoon. So I go to the golf course by myself in the morning. There are many golfers playing in the pro-am, a lot of them local duffers. But the crowds are following Arnie. It's as if the Beatles are performing on a hill and on a bill with a bunch of garage bands. There are ropes holding back the throngs, the vaunted Arnie's army. From one tee, Palmer comes into view, hitching up those trousers like no one else could. He's striding swiftly toward where his ball has landed. And here's the idiot part. I duck under the ropes and walk right up to him. You're not supposed to do such a thing. You're not supposed to go under the ropes. I didn't know. Maybe I did. I start to ask Palmer a question. Those pieces of copy paper in my hand triple-folded like I'd seen the real reporters do. And the marshals are approaching. This is not going to be good. If I'm tossed out or carried out, it will be in front of all of those people. It will be a pretty comical, humiliating scene. And my Uncle Harmon, my mother's brother, is one of those people in the gallery who will witness it. I ask Palmer the question. He gives me a look. Who the heck are you? I work at the local paper, I tell him. I don't mention just how low-level and transitory my job is or that no one has assigned me to be at the tournament. And here's the moment. Here's where Palmer either will motion for the marshals or give me the heave-ho, or he won't. He kind of laughs at the absurdity of this. Who is dumb enough at a professional golf event to duck under the ropes and approach a player? And not just any player, the most revered player in the game. Palmer patiently answers the question. He generously gestures to keep me walking with him. He gives the marshals a little signal. Don't worry about it. This will be fine. Thus, for that one magical day, a day that when it started, I had no reason to believe would be anything other than unexceptional. I walked the entire golf course in the company of Arnold Palmer. Wow. And so we close things out here Honoring the death of Arnold Palmer, he died on this day in history in 2016. And as always, our This Day in History is brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, the best and finest place to study all the things that matter in life. And my goodness, we're talking about something here that mattered in life. Character is what we're talking about here with Arnold Palmer. And so here on Our American Stories, Arnold Palmer's story ends with Jim Nance, the great CBS broadcaster. This was personal to him. You'll hear it in his voice. And it was personal, well, for all Americans. You know, his golf career has been over for a long time. And it'll always live on as a legendary career. 
But Arnold Palmer, the man, and how you treat people, that will live forever. American stories, and you're listening to the Staple Singers, and it's hard to interrupt this song. And this single, well, one of the most famous of the Staple Singers. And if you ever get a chance, just go on YouTube and watch Mavis do her thing with Pop Staples. It's a beautiful thing. And we thought we'd play this song by the Staple Singers, not as the story of a song, which we love to do here on this show, but because the story we're going to hear is about a stapler. And not just any ordinary stapler. Here's Jesse. A candy apple red swing line stapler plays a prominent role in Office Space, a 1999 dark comedy by Mike Judge about a fictitious Texas software company and the everyday people who work there. I believe you have my stapler. One of those office dwellers is Milton Wadhams, played by one of today's most prolific character actors, Stephen Root. He's an invisible nuisance that must be tolerated because he's a human on the planet, but he takes up space and and he's, he's not a bad human being to them. I don't consider Milton over the top at all. I think it's one of my subtlest roles actually. Even though it's a, a big character, it's, it's done really small. Milton is an overweight, aging nerd with prescription glasses so thick that you can't see his eyes. I don't care if they lay me off either because I told, I told Bill that if they move my desk one more time then then, I, then I'm quitting. I'm going to quit. And, and I told Dom, too, because they've moved my desk four times already this year, and I used to be over by the window, and I could see the squirrels, and they were married, but then they switched. He devotes his work days to guarding his red swing line against his boss, who is constantly moving his desk and stealing his stapler. Hi, Milton. And, but What's I, happening? I said, Milton, we're going to need to go ahead and move you downstairs into storage B. No, we, I, I was told uh, I could have not. some new people coming yeah. in, and no. we need all the there's, space we can get. But there's no space. So if you could in, just go ahead and it, pack up your it, stuff it, and move it down there, but, no. that would be terrific. I, I, I was told okay. I could stay. It, excuse me. Yeah, I, I believe you have my stapler. But Milton Wadhams eventually gets his revenge against the smug boss who takes his stapler away. I can set the building on fire. By setting the building on fire. Now, Office Space barely earned back the $10 million it cost News Corp's 20th Century Fox to make the film. But in 2000, when it came out on video, it was clear that the movie was reaching a particular audience. Cubicle-dwelling computer programmers. 
For months, Stringline fielded demands for that red stapler pouring in by phone and email. Corporate accounts payable, Nina speaking. Just a moment. There was just a slight little problem. Swingline didn't make bright red staplers. The one in the movie was custom painted by a prop designer. When real-life Milton Wadhamses found out they couldn't buy one from the manufacturer, they simply made their own, creating a thriving black market on eBay for swing lines that were simply spray-painted red. Then, finally, three years after the red stapler buzz began, Swingline began selling a real red stapler, its basic 747 model, now with a new paint job. Office Space has turned out to be one of the more effective, if unusual, recent examples of product placement in films. Now, the movie didn't just spark sales for Swingline. It invented the whole idea of a bright red stapler to begin with. Now, the sleepy Midwestern company that made the first top-loading stapler more than 60 years ago has discovered a new approach to marketing office products to younger generations. Best of all, the Office Space movie plug didn't cost Swingline a single dime. Through the magic of product placement, it's now common for advertisers to have their brands mentioned or used in feature films. Terms of these deals are among Hollywood's most closely guarded secrets. These days, they typically involve advertising or cross-promotion swaps worth millions of dollars. In Swingline's case, though, it was sheer luck, not money, that brought it into office space. I believe you have my stapler. Swingline executives didn't even recognize the marketing opportunity when the movie's producers approached them back in 1999. The company figured its mainstay customers were unlikely to trade up and declined the pitch. Still, the writer and director of Office Space, Mike Judge, best known as the creator of Beavis and Butthead, was determined to keep the red stapler in his film. Swingline did not stand in his way. The new product is a big deal in the stapler community, says Clark Allen, a 29-year-old Dallas web consultant and host of virtualstapler.com, where people exchange stories about staplers and stapler injuries. The red staplers have quickly become the most popular item on the Swingline website, which is the only place you can buy them, $29 a piece. And that is the story of a stapler, perhaps the most famous stapler there ever was. I'm Jesse Edwards, and this is Our American Stories. But then they switched from the swing line to the Boston stapler, but I kept my swing line stapler because it didn't bind up as much, and, and I kept the staples for the swing line stapler. Okay, Milton. And, oh, no, it's not okay because if they make me, if they, if they take my, my stapler, then I'll, I'll, I'll have to, I'll fit the building on fire. And great job as always, Jesse, and we got to order a couple of those swing line staplers. The red ones get on it. And stapler, virtualstapler.com. Stapler injuries, stapler stories. Jesse, I think that's a segment. I think that's a segment. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. We sublime stuff, silly stuff. We do it all here on the show. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to hear all that we do. And please sign up for the podcast. Again, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and tell friends about what we're doing. If you're sick of the yelling and the screaming, the politics, the downers, and just, well, sick of it all. Tune into our show for a little uplift, for a little laugh. You'll learn, you'll laugh, you'll think, you'll cry. That's our goal here. Make you feel something. Sometimes you'll learn something. And again, sometimes you'll just get a chuckle out of what we do, we hope. OurAmericanNetwork.org to learn more.
is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And when you hear that music, well, that's time for eulogy, a remembrance, a special piece of writing from somebody, a performance about someone who's just passed, a loved one who's passed a long time ago. And we've done all kinds of these, some from famous people and about famous people, and some from ordinary folks like you out there listening. And you've sent in your work, and we've produced it and sent it back out. Well, to the whole country. And this one is really special. Uh, This one has to do with a person you may not know and a sport you may not follow, but you know the name. And my goodness, what a man. And you're about to hear a eulogy, two eulogies, that is, about Arnold Palmer. And in his memory, Arnold Palmer died on this day in history back in 2016. And we were lucky enough to get footage and audio from his funeral service and memorial service. And so many people were there. It was remarkable. Captains of industry, ordinary folks from the little town of Latrobe, Pennsylvania. And it was all about, in the end, one thing with Arnold. It was the people. Arnie's army. You always heard about it, right? Well, you're about to hear why with two terrific stories. But in the end, it was all about relationships with Arnold Palmer. Arnold Palmer's relationship, as you're going to learn as you continue to listen with family, friends, and all of the people who loved him in the sport, well, there's a big reason for it. And it ends up that, as we learned about Arnold Palmer, he didn't just play the sport brilliantly. He democratized the sport, a sport that had been before him only for the elites. And he didn't just democratize it, he commercialized it. He was the first golf pro to win a million dollars on the professional tour. He was the first to fly his own plane to a tournament. He ended his career with 68 PGA wins, seven majors, and four masters. Four. The first to ever do such a thing. So let's go back to that memorial service. And now we hear from his grandson, a golf pro himself, Sam Saunders. We are all here for the same reason. We loved Arnold Palmer. We all loved my grandfather. I had the unique opportunity to be able to call him a grandfather. My family here today had the pleasure to know him as not just the celebrity, the professional golfer, the aviation superstar. Um, We knew him as Dumpy. That was his name. We referred him as, with as much love as we could. Uh, the name Dumpy came from my oldest sister, Emily, in an attempt to call him Grumpy as a little girl. Her GRs were Ds. And um, to this day, I have Dumpy in my phone. Dumpy. Saunders talks about knowing his grandfather as a real person. You all are used to seeing him in his stiff collared shirts with the umbrella pin, wearing it with a style that only he could. We had the unique opportunity to see him in cut-off sweatpants and a t-shirt sometimes. And we loved that man as much as you loved the man that you saw on TV. There wasn't a big difference between the man you saw on TV and the man that we knew at home. Saunders then went on to talk about how Arnold Palmer, his grandfather, was always there for him. I want to tell you 
a couple of stories from me personally of why he meant so much to me. I could talk about my golf career and, and how he helped me get started in that and, and all of the great advice he's given me, but what, what he did so well with me is he was always there. He was there for me, but he was there for our entire family. He would always take my phone call, always. In fact, I called him one day and he would always answer the phone and in his voice, where are you? That was, that was how he answered the phone every time. And I was always at a tournament somewhere. I said, oh, I'm, I'm here, I'm here. Or he'd say, why aren't you playing? And I said, I am playing. I'm in Boise, playing in the web.com event, or I'm, you know, wherever. And this one particular time, he said, where are you? I said, I'm at home. And I said, where are you? He said, I'm with the president. So I, I, I said, what do you, the president of what? <laughs> and he said to me as if it was so obvious, the United States. <laughs> he said, I'm in the Oval Office right now with the president. And I said, well, why are you answering your phone? He said, I wanted to talk to you. And that's what he did. He always wanted to talk to me. He always wanted to be there for us. And he always, always was. That'll make you feel pretty important. Having a granddad who cuts off the President of the United States to take a random call from a grandson. Something I think we can all learn from, by the way. Saunders then describes his next and final phone call with Grandpa. The next phone call I want to tell you about is a little bit tougher. It's the last phone call that I ever made to him. I will be grateful for the rest of my life that I called him at 4.10 on the Sunday that he passed away. I called him. He answered the phone on the first ring in the hospital, preparing for surgery the next morning. He asked me where I was. (laughs) Where are you? I said, I'm at home. I said, I'm thinking about you today. We all are. And he told me to take care of my babies, take care of my children, take care of my family, my entire family. And I intend to do that and make him proud. And then I told him I loved him. He told me he loved me back. And that was the last thing we said to each other. And I will cherish that for the rest of my life. And so we leave the memorial service at St. Vincent College in Latrobe, Pennsylvania with this from the singer and songwriter Vince Gill. I'm Vince. I'm the golfer none of you have ever heard of. Um, I just want to thank the family for the gift of uh, the invitation to come here and honor an old friend. That means more to me than you'll ever know. This, um, this man was uh, my favorite person. Not my favorite golfer, but my favorite person that I ever met.
This is Our American Stories, the life of Arnold Palmer, the memorial service at St. Vincent College in Latrobe, Pennsylvania. Let's take it out with Vince Gill. Wish I could see the angels' faces when they see your sweet, sweet swing. This is Our American Stories, and the song you just heard was Giving Tree by Plain White Tees, a song based on the famous picture book that was written by Shel Silverstein, who was born on this day in history in 1930. And all of our This Days in Histories, as always, are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to study all the things that matter in life, all the things that are beautiful in life. Go to hillsdale.edu. Here's Greg Hengler with the story. Poet W.H. Auden once said, There are good books which are only for adults. There are no good books which are only for children. Children's picture books matter because they're a form of our first impression of literature and become the gateway towards our appetites for the written word and our knowledge of the world. This most distilled form of art expresses basic truths about life in such a poetic way that it assumes the form of intellectual mother's milk. 
the stylistic eccentricities of Maurice Sendak, Dr. Seuss, and Shel Silverstein form the bedrock of our childhood lexicon. Shell's story is arguably the most eccentrically interesting among the big three. Actor-filmmaker James Franco is set to direct and star in the biopic centered on Shel Silverstein, and you're about to find out why. Born in 1930 on the northwest side of Chicago, Sheldon Allen Silverstein grew up in a second-story apartment crammed with relatives. His Jewish parents, an immigrant father from Eastern Europe, and a Chicago-born mother opened an unsuccessful bakery on the heels of the Great Depression. Though Silverstein's mother encouraged his early knack for drawing, his father made it clear that he was expected to join the floundering family business. Silverstein discovered his passion for drawing when he was five. The lonely, eccentric kid spent his K-12 years drawing, reading, and listening to the radio. Sir, is it true that you are 2,000 years old? Oh, boy. <laughs> they were his comfort and refuge from the perpetual boredom of school and his increasingly wrathful father. After a few unsuccessful attempts at college, he explained, I didn't get much attention from the girls, and I didn't learn much. Those are the two worst things that can happen to a guy. But this delay in gratification would later reveal itself as a blessing in disguise. By the time I could get the girls, I already knew how to write poems and draw pictures. Thank God I was able to develop these things which I could keep before I got the goodies that were my first choice. While serving in Japan and Korea, he found an unexpected outlet as an army cartoonist. When he was discharged and unemployed, Silverstein began submitting cartoons to magazines while hawking peanuts and hot dogs to fans at Comiskey Park in Chicago. His break came in 1956 when he visited the offices of a startup magazine for men and met its editor, himself an avid cartoonist and army veteran, Hugh Hefner. During those Playboy years, Silverstein shuttled back and forth between Chicago and downtown New York. He frequented folk clubs and began making his own music, scribbling away songs on the back of cocktail napkins and tablecloths, performing folk and jazz numbers in a low, gravelly voice. Silverstein was a prolific perfectionist. In 1964 alone, he published three children's books and one book for adults. Among them was The Giving Tree, whose breakaway success caught his publisher, who had printed a measly run of 7,000 copies, by surprise. Sales of The Giving Tree doubled every year in the decade following its publication. They have since approached 10 million copies in sales worldwide. Here's Shell reading The Giving Tree. Once there was a tree and she loved the little boy. And every day the boy would come. He would climb up her trunk and swing from her branches and eat apples 
And when he was tired, he would sleep in her shade. And the tree was happy. But then time passes and the boy forgets about her. But time went by. One day, the boy, now a young man, returns asking for money. Not having any to offer him, the tree is happy to give him her apples to sell. She is likewise happy to give him her branches and later her trunk until there's nothing left of her but an old stump, which the old man, or the boy, proceeds to sit on. Come, boy. Come sit down. Sit down and rest. And the boy did. And the tree was happy. This book has been described as one of the most divisive books in children's literature. The controversy concerns whether the relationship between the main characters, a boy and a tree, should be interpreted as positive, i.e. the tree gives the boy selfless love, or a negative, i.e. the boy and the tree have an abusive relationship. Lisa Rogak, in her biography on Silverstein, A Boy Named Shell, offered her take on the giving tree. Given Shell's disgust with the me-first attitude among the folk singers and other artists who were creating art as a form of self-analysis, he wrote it as a reaction to their own mushiness. Silverstein was continually asked to defend his children's picture book. It's just a relationship between two people. One gives and the other takes, he would often repeat. Every year, The Giving Tree appears on the list of top 10 children's books of all time. Silverstein said that he had never studied the poetry of others and had therefore developed his own quirky style. Shell was no coward, nor was his goal to please the most amount of people. Therefore, he was no fan of political correctness. Uh, there was a time that you take uh, Little Red Riding Hood, for example, the three little pigs, you know. There was a time when, I know when I read Little Red Riding Hood, she goes, you know, to the, to, you know, she gets the directions from the wolf and she goes to the grandmother's house and, and uh, the wolf's already been there and he's already eaten up the grandmother, you know. And uh, now an earlier edition than this had the wolf, he eats up the grandmother, the earliest edition, and then he eats up Little Red Riding Hood too. It was a moral story, you know. I don't know what the moral was, really, but it meant something. And uh, he eats the grandmother, and then he eats Red Riding Hood. Well, by the time I was reading the story, he eats the grandmother, but he doesn't quite manage to get Red Riding Hood down completely because the woodsman comes in and kills him. Then, as I was older, I read the book again, and what they turned it into this time was that he eats the grandmother... He doesn't get to Red Riding Hood, but the woodsman comes in and chops open the, the wolf's belly and the grandmother pops out. Brand new. Well, now I think it is. He comes in, he doesn't even eat the grandmother altogether. He just scares her and she runs away. And then the hunter comes in. Well, you know, eventually, uh, he, you know, the hunter and the wolf and the grandmother are all going to sit around and play gin rummy. Shell wrote hundreds of poems and verses for children in best-selling collections like the fiercely imagined works where the sidewalk ends, and a light in the attic. Translated into more than 30 languages, Shell's books have sold over 30 million copies. 
And when we come back, more on the life of Shel Silverstein, born on this day in history in 1930. Turn to the celebration of the life of Shel Silverstein, born on this day in history in 1930. Let's return to Greg Hengler. The Beatles were on the cover. The Beatles! Silverstein produced over 1,000 published songs, many of which have been used in TV shows and movies, including classics like Dr. Hook's The Cover of the Rolling Stone, which was featured in Almost Famous. Cameron Crowe's tender, semi-autobiographical film about going on tour with rock stars in the 1970s and writing about it for Rolling Stone magazine. Shell also wrote The Ballad of Lucy Jordan, which was featured in Thelma and Louise, and he was nominated for an Oscar and a Golden Globe for his song, I'm Checking Out, sung by Meryl Streep in the film Postcards from the Edge. I ain't gonna live on lonely street no more, no more. The fearsome-looking, bald, bearded Jew wearing a long-flowing pirate shirt and leather jacket that Goodwill would have rejected was also adored by the country music community. Here in Topeka, the rain is a-fallin', the faucet is a-drippin', and the kids are a-fallin'. One of them is toddlin', and one is a-crawlin', and one's on the way. He wrote One's on the Way and Hey Loretta, both hits for Loretta Lynn in 1971 and 1973. Well, they're building a gallows outside my cell And I've got 25 minutes to go And 25 Minutes to Go, sung by Johnny Cash About a man on death row With each line counting down one minute closer to his execution Well, I'm waiting for the pardon that'll set me free With nine more minutes to go but this ain't the movie, so forget about me. Eight more minutes to go. On February 23rd, 1969, the night before Johnny Cash was set to record his live album at San Quentin Prison, he held a party at his home. The evening ended as it usually did, with his friends trying out their latest songs. Bob Dylan sang Lay Lady Lay, Chris Christopherson sang Me and My Bobby McGee, and Shel Silverstein offered up A Boy Named Sue. Here's Johnny Cash's son, John Carter Cash. Shel brought my dad a poem named Boy Named Sue. And dad read it, and he, was, and he laughed, and he liked it. He put it in his pocket. And this was right before he went to San Quentin to record the, the live album there. He got on stage... Uh, for the live performance, and he and basically remembered that poem in his pocket. 
And he reached in and took it out and looked at it, turned around to the band and said, play something in A. And the band just began to play. And uh, just a little, you know, 12 bar um, walking blues rhythm. And then dad recited the lyric, first time he'd ever recited it live, ever. And it was recorded and that was the big number one hit. Well, my daddy left home. Here's Johnny Cash singing A Boy Named Sue for the first time at San Quentin Prison. Well, my daddy left home when I was three and he didn't leave much to Ma and me. Just this old guitar and an empty bottle of booze. Now, I don't blame him because he run and hid, but the meanest thing that he ever did was before he left, he went and named me Sue. Well, he must have thought that it was quite a joke and it got a lot of laughs from a lots of folks. Seems I had to fight my whole life through. Some gal would giggle and I'd get red and some guy'd laugh and I'd bust his head. I'll tell you, life ain't easy for a boy named Sue. Well, I grew up quick and I grew up mean. My fist got hard, my wits got keen. Roamed from town to town to hide my shame. But I made me a vow to the moon and stars I'd search the honky-tonks and bars And kill that man that gave me that awful name Well, it was Gatlinburg in mid-July And I'd just hit town and my throat was dry I thought I'd stop and have myself a brew At an old saloon on a street of mud There at a table dealing stud Sat the dirty mangy dog that named me Sue well, I knew that snake was my own sweet dad from a worn-out picture that my mother'd had. And I knew that scar on his cheek and his evil eye. He was big and bent and gray and old, and I looked at him and my blood ran cold. And I said, my name is Sue. How do you do? How are you gonna die? Yeah, that's what I told him. Well, I hit him hard right between the eyes and he went down, but to my surprise, come up with a knife and cut off a piece of my ear. But I busted a chair right across his teeth and we crashed through the wall and into the street, kicking and a gouging in the mud and the blood and the beard. I tell you, I fought tougher men, but I really can't remember when. He kicked like a mule and he bit like a crocodile. I heard him laugh and then I heard him cuss and he went for his gun to pull mine first. He stood there looking at me and I saw him smile. He said, son, this world is rough and if a man's going to make it, he's got to be tough. And I know I wouldn't be there to help you along. So I give you that name and I said goodbye. I knew you'd have to get tough or die. And it's that name that helped to make you strong. Yeah. Now you just fought one hell of a fight And I know you hate me and you got the right To kill me now And I wouldn't blame you if you do But you ought to thank me before I die For the gravel in your guts and the spit in your eye Cause I'm the that named you Sue Yeah, what could I do? What could I do? I got all choked up and I threw down my gun Called him a paw and he called me a son and I come away with a different point of view And I think about him now and then Every time I try and every time I win And if I ever have a son I think I'm gonna name him 
Bill or George, anything but Sue, I still ain't that When this song came out a few months later, it hit number one on the Billboard Country charts for five weeks and spent three weeks at number two on the pop charts, just behind the Rolling Stones' Honky Tonk Women. Shell wrote A Boy Named Sue after hearing his close friend Gene Shepard, known for the film A Christmas Story, which he narrated and co-scripted, complain about being teased for his girl's name as a kid. Oh, fudge. Only I didn't say fudge. A boy named Sue managed to become one of the most referenced country songs of all time. On April Fool's Day, 1970, Johnny Cash sang a truncated version of A Boy Named Sue with Shell on the Johnny Cash Show. A lot of your writings have meant a great deal to me and... Uh, uh, for one song in particular that she wrote has been largely responsible for a lot of the success I've had lately. She wrote A Boy Named Sue. Among other well, it was Gatlinburg in mid-July and I'd just hit town and my throat was dry. Thought I'd stop and have myself a brew. At an old saloon, saloon on a street, street of mud. mud. Bear the table, dealing studs. Well, I knew that snake was my own sweet dad from a worn-out picture that my mother had had. I knew that scar on his cheek and his evil eye. He was kind of bent, gray and old. I looked at him, my blood run cold. I said, my name is Sue. How do you do? Now you're going to die. Shell's voice has been compared to everything from a creaking door or a rusty gate to the yelp made by a dog whose tail had been stepped on. (laughs) He agreed with the critique, although he liked the sound of his voice. Silverstein also co-wrote The Taker with Chris Christopherson, which was recorded by Waylon Jennings. He's a helper, Neil Heffer. Open the doors that she can't on her own. Shell also advised Bob Dylan on album lyrics for what turned out to be Blood on the Tracks, released in 1975. Silverstein also wrote plays. He even co-wrote the screenplay Things Change with legendary playwright David Mamet. On May 10th, 1999, Shel Silverstein died at age 68 of a heart attack in Key West, Florida. He is buried in Westlawn Cemetery in Norridge, Illinois. From best-selling children's book author to Grammy-winning, Oscar-nominated songwriter, Shel Silverstein's unique imagination and bold brand of humor are beloved by countless adults and children all over the world. And what a great story. Great work, as always, by Greg Hengler. And all of our This Day in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to learn all the things that matter in life, all the things that are beautiful in life. Go to hillsdale.edu to see and watch their free and terrific online courses. 
The Life of Shel Silverstein, born on this day in history in 1930, here on Our American Stories.